Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Just Work Podcast. I am Kim Scott, and... And I am Wesley Faulkner. Today, we are really excited to have Delia. Uh, Kim's been talking about the blog post that you wrote, uh, and so hopefully we can talk about that later today. But Delia, could you please take a few moments to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Delia Grenville, and so glad to be here, Kim and Wesley. Thanks for having me. Um, I am an executive from tech. I've been working in tech for over 25 years now, and I've worked almost every, in everything in the product development lifecycle. Um, my passion is around how people innovate, and uh, my career has given me the opportunity to see a lot of it successful and sometimes not so successful. So I think that was one of the reasons why when I heard Kim's recent TED Talk, I reached out to her because she sort of helped me understand some of the terrain under how teams innovate in a way that I'd never heard about it before. And Delia, you taught me a word, mobbing. Which is now that I, you know, how every once in a while you learn something new and it explains everything and you see it everywhere. So you did that for me. Thank you. We'll oh, talk awesome. about that. <laughs> uh, why don't, in fact, before I jump into a reading, why don't you tell folks what, what mobbing is, if you don't mind? The first thing that pops into mind is it, it's a TikTok challenge, right? Mobbing. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, it does. Although do. it could be. It could be, and it does, definitely has its own dance to it, but it's not the kind that we're used to. Um, oftentimes in organizations, uh, uh, people are challenged or don't know how to react to a new team member or a different team member or someone thinks differently. And instead of doing all the great things that we know in radical candor, they instead get very silent and gossipy and sort of join together in a group kind of think kind of way to target this person and remove them from the situation. And the reason why they want to do this, and that's one of the, the key tenets, is they're trying to go back to the status quo. Everything was perfect before so-and-so arrived. And if we can only go back, then everything would be perfect. But oftentimes that person's hired into the organization to help change to make that mandate move forward. So it's an interesting phenomenon. We know it's there, but it's not often named. Like all of us know exactly what it is yeah. when we hear it and we're like, oh, it had a word. <laughs> and yeah. <it> <laughs> yeah. And my, my guess is in the research, it's more likely to happen to someone from a historically marginalized community than, than someone who is from a historically advantaged community. Is that correct? It, it has some of that component, but not uh, not, not always. so much, it's, not as much as we would think. It really happens mostly to people who are ambitious. Yeah, and um, and then we know that that ambition component is mapped on to being in a marginalized community because oftentimes the way you compete yeah. is through ambition. So that's why I think we would see that more so than the the main factor is ambition. It's this. Yeah. Uh, and, and not blind ambition, but ambition that makes other people say, well, this is not the way we were doing the work before. Yeah. And so then that makes people. So it's more right. around change and, and innovation than it is it's around identity. Cheese mover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Who moved my cheese? I love it. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about that. But if you don't mind, I'd love, we, 
I've got a reading from uh, from the book formerly known as Just Work, now known as Radical Respect. And it's a little bit of a longer one, but basically what we've been doing up till now is sort of outlining a framework that explains the difference between bias, prejudice, and bullying, and then what happens when you layer power on top and you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations, and the different roles that we all play. And so this uh, is a reading from the chapter on what leaders can do to prevent those things from happening in their organizations. Uh, and I hope that you and Wesley will give me some radical candor. Tell me what doesn't oh, work. Absolutely. About this. I'm ready to <laughs> so, rip you apart. Yeah, rip it apart. All right. Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, explained in his book, The Score Takes Care of Itself that his job was to win football games, but he couldn't win those games if he focused too much on the score. The score was a lagging indicator of what he was doing well or badly as a coach. He needed to go to back up and understand the leading indicators, behaving ethically, demanding high standards, holding people accountable, and teaching players the right way to play. Note that good teamwork, caring about one's colleagues, goes hand in hand with holding people accountable. Bias, prejudice, and bullying cause unethical behavior, lower standards, and prevent accountability and harm collaboration. All of these things will prevent you from achieving your goals. Of course, it's not your fault as a leader that bias, prejudice, and bullying are so common, but you're the boss, and so it is your problem. It's not your job to make the whole world just, but it is your job to make your little corner of the world as fair as possible. You can't do it by yourself or by executive order. You're going to need your team's help, and getting that help will require you to make it safe for them to challenge both you and each other. This requires what psychologist Jennifer Fried calls institutional courage. Institutional courage is a leadership commitment to seek the truth and to take action on behalf of those who trust or depend on the institution, even when it's unpleasant, difficult, and costly. Institutional courage requires proactive action. For example, creating systems by which employees can raise concerns without fear of being punished, as well as responsive action. For example, responding to reports of harm forthrightly, thoroughly, and fairly. These efforts can prevent future incidents, allow people harmed to recover more quickly, increase trust between employees and leaders, and enhance the institutional institution's overall reputation. On the other hand, institu institutional betrayal, for example, when an institu institution mistreats those who trust or depend on it, only compounds the harm to all involved. Some common forms of institutional betrayal are victim blaming, sweeping incidents under the rug, and the like. It can be tempting to engage in these behaviors as a way to save time and money or limit legal exposure. Ultimately, though, institutional betrayal harms people all over again and will harm your organization's reputation in the long run. To demonstrate institutional courage, it's not enough to demonstrate personal courage as a leader. You're human. Sometimes your courage and energy will falter or fail. You need to develop both proactive and responsive systems that will hold you and others accountable. Get started. Don't wait for reports of incidents and problems to come to you. Be proactive. All right. So lay it on me. What do you think? 
Well, that's, I, I think a lot of it's on point. Um, but I want to uh, just give you a comment when I was listening to institutional courage. You know, I think a lot of times with uh, HR training and systems, we are really concerned about taking action, you said, and also making it easy for people to bring forward their complaints. Um, but they, we don't talk to employees about taking ethical action. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a qualifier there that kind of feeds into this notion of institutional betrayal where mobbing often lives, yes. right? It's not only is the person being, you know, bullied or mobbed. I don't want to say bullied, but, you know, this workplace group aggression that you can't really put your finger on. Not only is that happening to them, but when they go to the institution to say, it's kind of weird. I feel like this thing's happening. How do you like report manipulative insincerity? It's yeah, it's It's really hard. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So you do sound a little wackadoo, right? So you go there and you're not in this place. Uh, You're not, you're not in a way you cannot exactly explain what's happening to you. Um, So you've got that component to it in the betrayal. But then what I've noticed with groups who mob targets is they actually leverage these same HR systems. Yes. And they report actions that aren't ethical in a, in a way that isn't ethical, right? But they're not held accountable to it because if you're going just by the tick marks, Kim and Wesley, yeah. you're supposed to report and you're supposed to report quickly. You're not actually supposed to report accurately. Yes. <laughs> you should. We believe you should. We put that in the fine print, but there's no like, real accountability around that one. That is a really important point. That is a really, really important point. Um, I can think of an example of that happening uh, to a leader who I knew who was making a lot of change in his organization and someone who didn't like that change created a Facebook group. And then they started they started making stuff up and reporting it in the in the HR system, and this big investigation ensued. Uh, and it was very difficult for him to protect himself. I think that's what you're pointing out is also where it's hard when every individual incident itself might sound, but a bit sound like off or attacking or just not right. But it, in these situations, you almost have to look at it as totality. You have to look at it, a, a string and you have to look at a pattern of behavior. And, um, you know, the Bill Walsh example talking about how the, the, the lagging indicators and leading indicators of how you need to weed out some of that uh, bad behavior, that kind of weird environment and where people do not feel welcome in order for that outcome, that ultimate outcome to actually show itself. Um, some of the, when I was thinking about difficulties in my past, some, some of the, the simplistic nature of how people approach things, um, some, it really shows that if you, if you don't take the steps that are needed to get to the outcome and deal with all of the details that even though that you put something into motion and you feel like it's directly addressing the thing that you're trying to influence, how it, it is temporary 
in the way that it shows itself. For instance, I was in a job where I was a marketer and uh, my manager at the time, we were running a promotion and they had me go to all these communities and just post a promotion there, like spammy behavior. And it was saying, buy our thing, buy our thing, buy our thing. But real marketers are the ones that are able to understand the nuance of the message and saying, find the people, find what they need. Uh, and then change your message to really address their needs. And it, it is multiple steps into really getting to the point where you actually see those results. And in the mob behavior or mob mentality, the way that you describe it, the mobbing, it's being able to, it's rejecting things that might challenge the status quo um, because there is the same kind of thinking of, this is the way you do things because we're trying to do things. It's the simplest explanation. And so the mobbing goes into the whole, this is how we do, we do things because this is how we have been doing things. And this is kind of the, the, the thing that we're used to. And so I, I do like the story, uh, sorry, the reading, and it kind of like ties it all together of what you're explaining because um, the change maker or the person making things better um, even though they're trying, like you mentioned, the HR example, it's hard to explain, but it is also kind of like uh, a, a part of the willingness to say, like, I'm hired to make this company better. I'm not hired to kind of like push people down or to put people out of a job. I want to make this better. And so th- th- I think the reading and the example are just different sides of the same coin. So um, I think it's amazing how those worked out together. I have a question, which is how do you, for for either of you, but how can you design systems that simultaneously sort of cherish the whistleblower and also hold the whistleblower accountable for for um, for not for not lying? Yeah, I and I I think a lot of it goes back to. Also, how do we train the whistleblower? Because I think we need to level up our whistleblowing, at least in organizations, and especially in organizations like in the tech world, Mm -hmm. uh, because it's simply just not enough to, you know, we were really concerned about the psychological safety of whistleblowers, which I think is number one, like on the Maslow's hierarchy of whistleblowing, that's got to be the foundational thing, right? You need to be able to come there and be safe and whatever. And so we haven't really thought about the rest of the triangle in some ways, right? How do we train you to understand, well, why are you doing this whistleblowing? A lot of times what I observe, um, because I didn't mention this in the intro, but I am a certified coach from New Ventures West, and we talk a lot about integrating people's entire entire life from that. And, um, you know, a lot of times you the way you're being triggered at work is the way you've been triggered elsewhere. It's not necessarily the change at work, as Wesley was mentioning, that's making you feel that way. It's your reaction to change because you've never had another way to react to change, right? So... Part of that, as you said, Kim, is your boss's responsibility to help to help you manage through that. But, you know, bosses are human (laughs) and there's a lot of people. It's hard to have like, you know, get right to the conversation. And because we prioritize that 
whistleblowing psychological safety, sometimes some folks might go to the whistleblowing before they go to the manager. And it's actually uh, an opportunity for personal development for them. Mm-hmm. But they're but instead, they've leaned to the system. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And which makes them sort of not even see themselves in the opportunity to grow themselves. But instead, they're attached to this whole mechanism of reporting, complaining, all of those kinds of things, which if it's, if we're talking about ethical action, ethical Mm -hmm. complaints, we actually maybe do a disservice to that whistleblower as well, because we didn't, we don't give them a chance to grow the way they should. Yeah. It's extremely messy. Um, because there's, (laughs) sometimes you want to just, um, there's attribution bias that's, that I think, people struggle with this person is doing this because of this instead of actually, this is the thing that I observe. Um, But on the HR side, I think there's also like from a, from a person who has tried to report things to HR as well. um, There's not a realization that there's sometimes or oftentimes there's not a perfect victim. So uh, I know that I've been questioned on, am I performing? Am I, what are other avenues that I use to try to raise this issue? Um, so the assumption that the the manager themselves have your best in- interests at heart. And so maybe it's my misunderstanding. Um, I think the, the, the delicate balance between the two saying that there could be bad actors on both sides, but the question is how do we sort it out by looking at the power dynamic is uh, it's something that often gets missed, but I think inherent to your question, Kim, is that the system itself wants the system wants things to be fair. Um, And I think not all systems are created equal. Um, And, and, and my heart of hearts, I wish that that was a concern that most companies had was making sure that the systems are fair and that the whistleblower should be protected. Yeah, so the whistleblower needs to be protected and the the investigation process needs to be fair. And so so I mean as a general rule my default is to cherish the whistleblower, listen to the whistleblower. But you know, there certainly are times where where the whistleblower is is uh ganging up with is mobbing instead of really blowing a whistle and and that's why the a fair investigative process needs to be in place. And that is easier said than done. I mean, those kinds of, I mean, I, uh, gosh, I can't think of a single moment in my career where an investigative process (laughs) I felt great about, you know, Uh, I'm sure that there are companies out there that have good investigative processes, but I just haven't experienced one. Yeah. I think think we also come in to, like we want it simplified, right? Works yeah. so easy. <laughs> so yeah. we, as we said, Wesley, we want a perfect vis- victim, a perfect target. Yeah, uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> a perfect case. resolution, you know, and everything. But that's just not how that how it works, and it especially doesn't work that way as we are to. Dem- as we require these more complex teams for these more complex ideas. Right. So that's why I feel like, you know, when you were reading, uh, reading Bill Walsh's thing, he said the score is the lagging indicator. I kind of feel like the system is the lagging indicator in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Once it, once it gets, once there's been a report, things have gone badly wrong. Actually, as we were talking, I was thinking about maybe this is a system where things worked the way they ought to work. Uh, and so on, on the one hand, so this is, this happened shortly after I joined Google and I, I, I inherited the AdSense teams and I, and I had all these big changes I was making, you know, and, and, you know, it was, and there were pretty big changes. Like it was all one team. I broke it into five teams. Everybody had metrics for the first time. Everybody, every team had a boss, you know, for the, so, and to me, it felt like I was doing the obvious things. It didn't feel like any big deal. And suddenly I had five direct reports when I joined and in one week, three of them left the team. So there was actually not a whistleblowing. They they didn't have to go and tell my boss that I that they didn't like my management style. They could just leave. Mm-hmm. And and so that was a pretty strong signal I was getting. Like I was afraid I would get fired, but my boss explained to me what I had done wrong. Like I hadn't taken the time to listen to them to, you know, I jumped into execution or into implementing my own ideas mode, uh, which is a common mistake, I think. Um, and, uh, and what she said to me is, you know, you feel like, imagine you're spinning a rope, you know, it feels like no big deal motion to you. You're just flicking your wrist. But if you're at the end of that rope, it does feel like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that was like a really important moment for me. So I grew as a leader and I didn't get fired right away, but I had to go, I had to quickly go find three new (laughs) three new uh, uh, managers to come in and work for me. And, and that was hard, you know, that was hard. Um, so maybe that's, I mean, that's an example of a system that, that where they didn't have to suffer. Uh, uh, and I did feel a little, it wasn't exactly mobbed. I felt abandoned. I would say. Yeah. Um, but I think it was uh, on the other hand, I mean, this is different in that I think I, I think I was making some mistakes too. You know, I had something to learn. And I think too, in the, any scenario, even with mobbing, right? Like I love what Wesley said, there's no perfect business victim and there's, and the target's not perfect because the fundamental attribution error, like they're almost setting themselves up for that, right? Maybe the job and the position has set them up themselves up for that. Maybe as you were giving in your example, Kim, that, um, you know, you went into execution mode, maybe too early for the temperature yeah. of the team. So there's, you know, there it, it's not without cause, yeah. but it's not the reaction that we should have. Like yeah. by now we should have trained people better that, you know, you've got Kim and she's spinning, but you're out on the other side of the, you know, you're having yeah, to go different. talk to Kim before you quit. Maybe exactly, be- <laughs> exactly. You know, and I think that's what you try to do with um, radical candor, right. Is, yeah. you know, give people a mechanism to talk to people. And yeah. I think, we sort of hesitate to do that because we have a lot of narratives in our head. Um, yeah. I just wanted to pivot real quickly to like the, the blog that I wrote um, in that what amazed me in watching the bear for the first time a week ago, which was now. Should, my I haven't new- watched. Should I watch? 
Yeah, oh, for sure. It's my okay. new topic. It's my new topic du jour. Okay. <laughs> um, but what amazed me is that writers can write the situation, Kim. Like they write the situation where everyone's tense. They don't like the changes and the transformations that you're making. Uh, they don't talk to you. They sideswipe and they talk to each other and whatever. They can write it. So that means we've all seen it. We all yes. know it. We're familiar. And part of the tension of that particular show, I don't want a spoiler for everybody, is this feeling of, because we all know that doomsday feeling, like we've yeah. seen Moon Girls, we know what's, we know how yeah. the thing goes, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, but what amazed me this time is I realized, wow, if writers can write us in, then there's no reason that we as a storied being can't live ourselves out of it. Yes. You know what I'm saying? I love we, that. And so then how do we do that? And how do we do that? Part of it is these kinds of conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it is naming and labeling things. Like now we have words like, you know, radical candor, modding. We have all of these words for things we didn't have words for before. So I think that makes a difference. Um, And then when you have words, then you can make distinctions, right? You're saying, well, you know what? This is just group aggression. No one targeted Kim leaving the organization, so she wasn't being mobbed, but it could have gone to that if it didn't have the right culture or if her boss didn't say, oh, well, let's see how we grow you, but you got to find those three people, right? So we need these stories to be told more um, and get them out of the dark corners and sort of into the light so we can in that psychological safety of being able to report what's truly happening to you in the organization, we don't have to tell just the foundational perfect story. We can actually tell a little complex, messy story that includes some of the things that we actually did too (laughs) and feel safe about, you know, helping um, the organization succeed, right? Because I loved what you said about Bill Walsh. He was here to win football games. We're all on the team to win, right? So when three people walk out, you know, that affects the organization and sort of moves moves us away from what our common goal was, which was to win. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I have to say that that, that, um, as a person who's moved, um, it's sometimes scary if you have a neighbor who, let's say at midnight, has a roaring party and it's loud and you have a choice to make. Do you walk over and ask nicely for them to lower the music or do you call the cops anonymously and they don't know who's complaining? Um, and if you go over and you ask them nicely and politely and it doesn't go well, then that kind of sours a relationship. But if you call the cops, you don't have to deal with that. And it's almost the same when you have a manager. And so it sounds like the three employees that you mentioned, Kim, decided to call the cops rather than to come over and have a nice, polite conversation. And Well, they didn't call the cops. They just moved out of the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> they moved out of the neighborhood. They go with their feet, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, so the, and I was hoping that, you know, because of the, they do have that ability to leave, then mm-hmm. that, that would, should have in some ways reduced the risk for them to talk to you directly, yes. but they chose not to. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if that is a systematic failing or is that a, a, a personal 
scarring where they know that it's better to do that? Or was it like, um, I don't know if they all went to the same team or different. they had the same connections. They had different teams. Like how, how were they able to coordinate that? And if they meant to send, send a message. So um, it's very interesting that I, I, that's what raises my, my, my question is like, if they knew that they could just leave, why not they? Why not tell you on the way out? Is it because they don't want you to see you succeed, or what? Uh, yeah, it felt it did feel to me a little bit hostile. Uh, at the same time, you know, to give that to be fair, it's hard to give critical feedback to your boss, and a lot of people are reluctant to do it. And you know, that was another lesson from that moment. I. I think since I was the the leader of that organization, it was incumbent upon me to make it to 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 let them know and to earn their trust that I would not I would not retaliate if they came and told me that I would actually take action. And and so that was another valuable learning from a painful moment was that people you know when 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 you become a leader of an organization, very often I think you become like a projection screen for everyone's unresolved authority issues. <laughs> and that's uncomfortable and it's not your fault, but once again, it is your job. And so, so part of the work of being a leader is to earn the trust of the people who you're leading and, and to prove to them that you're not going to retaliate if they do come and give you some critical feedback. Yeah. I, I love that that you brought in the word trust too, because when you were telling um, Bill's story as well, that trust element is so huge. Yeah. And um, first, you have to trust to be able to come forward. Then you have to trust how the message will be received. Then you need to trust that there could be a resolution. And you know, oftentimes we don't want to talk about those touchy feely things, right? Mm -hmm. We feel like, oh, yeah, trust. Yeah, <laughs> but we don't actually talk about what that word feels like to everyone mm -hmm. and where mm -hmm. they experience it in their in them their physical selves as well as where they experience it in the timeline of their lives like yes. when you learn to trust and how you learn to trust also impacts how you work with trust as an adult and in a team absolutely absolutely so Delia, I bet you've got a good story about having dealt with mobbing or some other version of bias, prejudice, bullying. Uh, I think of mobbing as kind of almost a form of group bullying, but um, but you want to you want to lay a story on us? Um, sure. Uh, and I want to actually tie the story back a little bit to what you asked for at the begin asked about at the beginning. Um, okay. You know, you you asked a really good question: Is mobbing happening to people in marginalized groups? And you know, um, I'm learning a lot from reading your book, and I think yes. I mean, in one of my experiences as a manager, looking back now, I mm -hmm. realized that a, when we're in the situation, and people might not be able to see, but maybe they go on LinkedIn, LinkedIn. But I am a Black woman, Canadian, Caribbean descent, right? So in tech. And, and we're in the situation of leadership. We're often, you know, very, uh, uh, there's very few of us. Um, I mean, I've worked in organizations where we're just two dozen at the senior levels, et cetera. It's not a lot of people. And there's an expectation that we're going to bring up and move up others in our demographic. 
And mm-hmm. I'm totally fine with that. But what I learned thinking back on your book and what caused a sort of a mobbing situation for me in one organization is the people that I moved up in my so-called demographic, and I really wanted to do that for DEI reasons and all of those mm-hmm. kinds of things, um, had also been get, getting feedback from their uh, majority demographic people, uh, mm-hmm. managers, which were in the ruinous empathy domain. So there, I think I'm getting like this popping person, whatever, because everyone's really careful, Kim and Wesley around that DEI domain. They don't want to tell a woman something. They don't want to tell her, you know, am I, you know, you know the story, right? Yes. And so I think I'm getting this worker who is like, you know, all firing and, um, and are firing on all cylinders, I meant to say, and all, but I'm not getting that because they haven't really gotten great feedback from their work. And in this particular situation, it did set up a mobbing scenario because when I started to give honest feedback in all the ways that I could following, you know, all the parameters that I could, Mm -hmm. it wasn't taken positively because it was the only time that person had gotten that kind of feedback. Yeah. And instead of thinking, well, why was that? That was the culture of the organization. And I get that. And also when you're in change and transformation, I get all of those things that were also fueling it, but the person went to gossip. And there was a place that they could be heard there, right? Yeah. And so that sort of fueled the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I really picked through that situation because I saw, wow, it started really in ruinous empathy for this employee. And they moved into my radical, candid organization, Mm -hmm. but didn't know how to handle the feedback because... In like in some of the examples that you gave, you know, when the person was dropping the ball, um, yeah. it was new to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is so. It is. Uh, it is unfortunately very common where you have, where you have a systemically advantaged boss. Shall we? And th- I'd love some thoughts on the use of language. Like, is that the right way to? Uh, I like the term. Sometimes I use. I used to use uh, overrepresented and underrepresented, and a lot of people didn't like that. So now I'm saying systemically advantaged boss. So you've got a white man who's the boss, let's say, just for example, and uh, and then and then you have an employee who's not a white man, and and the boss is reluctant to give feedback to that employee because they're afraid of getting quote unquote, and they'll say this often sort of explicitly, I'm afraid of getting in trouble with HR. And um, David Thomas, who's the president of Morehouse College, wrote this great essay about protective hesitation. This is like this where, where, where the historically advantaged leader fails to give feedback to someone who is uh, from a from a historically disadvantaged group, because because they don't want to be called sexist or racist or 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 whatnot, and uh, and and then they do the sexist or racist thing by not giving the feedback. Because you know uh, Claude Steele writes about this as well, and uh, it calls it stereotype threat, and. Um, uh, and he he did this exp- in in this book Whistling Vivaldi, which is such a beautiful book 
but he but he writes about this experiment where he got a group of white students and he told them that they were going to talk to other students about affirmative action. And then he asked them to set up chairs. And in some cases, he told them they were about to talk to other white students. And in other cases, he told them they were going to talk to black students. And when the white students thought they were going to talk to black students about affirmative action, they set the chairs up further apart. Than, uh, and, you know, I, I, I read that. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I can, I, can, I can imagine easily, all too easily imagine that happening. And that, and that is another example of, of what Claude Steele calls stereotype threat, where you're so afraid of doing the thing that that your group is often accused of doing that you then do the thing, <laughs> um, and uh, and so it's I think it's really important what you're what you're talking about. Uh, and, and there's another I th I think uh, aspect to that problem that you're talking about that that at least I've experienced, and I wonder whether you all have too in different ways. But as a as a white woman, I don't for people listening who can't tell what I look like. I have often been asked to give feedback to other women because their boss, who's a man, is a... And so now I'm like, you know, uh, I'm, being, uh, I'm, I'm being asked to do extra work uh, because, because these leaders are afraid to do their work. <laughs> and, and that doesn't feel like I'll do it for the sake of the employee, but it, it's sort of annoying. Yeah, but it's I also... Actually... Oh, sorry, oh, sorry Leslie. No, 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 but I'm saying also it goes back to that hierarchy triangle that we're building, right? We're yeah. not also making it safe for that manager to give that feedback. Yes. We need to think about that too, yeah. like, you know, because like, why do they need an intermediary? Yeah, well, they don't, but they feel afraid, right? And yeah. how are we supposed to do great work when we're feeling afraid at all these crazy different levels? Like whether we're right or not, we can't be in fear. Yeah. I guess. I mean, what I tell uh, the other, not too long ago, I was talking to a group of CEOs and, and uh, who were mostly um, white men. And one of them said, I'm not going to give feedback to some of my employees because I'll get in trouble with HR. And I, and my response was, first of all, who does HR report to you? So you're not going to, you, 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 to say you feel afraid is not right. You feel uncomfortable. And there's a world of difference to me in feeling afraid and feeling uncomfortable. And as a leader, it's your job to embrace the discomfort and push on. The only way out is through, but maybe I'm not being sympathetic enough to well, or maybe I think you are saying perfectly. A lot of people don't know the 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 difference between fear and discomfort. It feels yeah. the same to them, right? Yeah. So that's their personal development to go through yes. the discomfort yeah. of it. But you know, but we're still trying to build products and make services while all yeah. of this is going on. Yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And, and also, if they identify as an issue, I I feel that people feel that that issue is permanent. They don't do the work to follow up saying, I'm going to find a way to solve this problem, either my yeah. discomfort or if I can't find the, the the way to talk to them directly, find another way, which I guess that's why people approach you to hand, to hand off that message to someone else who is also a woman. Um, but there, it, it needs to be, there needs to be 
either is is it systematic is it the the is it formulaic meaning like if there's a template for giving feedback maybe it's in stars or or maybe it's in thumbs ups or something like that a way to find a way to like do it so that there is either a guardrail in developing um, a system to make sure that the the feedback is given doesn't go into a place where it could be problematic or does it uh, fall into a place where if there is how the person receives it, if there's a way to like either challenge it or uh, a structure into addressing some of the issues that are being brought up. If going and giving feedback feels like it's dangerous for the person who's in power, the person in power can also develop a way to figure out how to fix that problem. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kim, I wanted to ask you a question or at least uh, uh, just finish off part of that story which was um, every director uh, mm-hmm. who, or a senior manager who had worked with a variety of these employees mm-hmm. had given me feedback um, that was counter to what was written in the HR system. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, in code words, like they're very efficient, but they can be polarizing. Right. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. You know, all those kinds of things. And then it's really hard as you all know, as you know, as you sit in your marginalized groups, because you're trying to also protect people from that. So yeah. you don't know how much of it is like rhetoric and how much yeah. of it is actual true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in those situations, I think the the comp well, there's a lot of aspects to it that are complicated. It's one is if you if you sense that the real feedback that's not getting into the HR system is not actually feedback, but it's bias. You know, to say this person is polarizing. I mean, you know, often when someone says that, what they mean is this person doesn't look like the others in the group, and so it's uncomfortable. You know. Uh, and that's not polarizing. That's like the problem. So, so is that is that bias masquerading as feedback? And if so, then you've got some feedback to give to the leader. But if it is if it's sort of good performance feedback that would help the person, then you got to give the feedback to the leader. Well, why didn't you tell the person? Like, why didn't you write it in the? Uh, you know, and maybe there's a problem with the HR system, but at the very least, that leader should should be talking. Should be given the development person feedback to the person so that they can improve. Yep. There you go. That's the complexity of life. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It'd, well, it'd be it's- nice if, yeah, it'd be nice if there's a third party, like bring in, don't allow this conversation without a facilitator as well. Someone who can evaluate the words either. Like, I think you bring up Texio a lot that be able to look at the way the words are structured and, and be kind of like in the middle between the person receiving and giving the feedback to make sure that things are, are working the way they should. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really, when I was writing radical respect, I hired a breeze Harper, who's a critical race theorist and who was sort of my bias buster. And that was really helpful because I'm white. My editor's white. Like we missed some stuff and, and, and breeze read and caught it immediately and and that was really helpful. Uh, so so our, if 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 folks can swing that, uh, if they have budget for that, it's really really helpful. Yeah, 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you so much for teaching me about mobbing. I really, I've learned a ton uh, from, from you about it. Well, I really hope that we can live in a world where we see less of it and that we know some of those behaviors and we can nip them in the bud earlier um, and have the conversations that really help us do the work that we all want to do. You know, we spend a lot of time at work. We should be focused on the things that we want to achieve. Yes, totally agree. And if you would like to share a new word for us, uh, please send that <laughs> over to hello at justworktogether.com. And we would love to to be able to feature that and share that knowledge with other people listening to the show. And if you have feedback for us, non-biased, hopefully, um, <laughs> please uh, use the podcast of uh, that you're listening to, the, the application to give us a rating or a review, because we would love to see that, to see how we're doing in our performance plans. Thanks so much. Take care, Thanks, everyone. Be well.